Um, let's get going. The 28th lesson in our studies in Ephesians tonight, I want to, we're, we're, we're trying to work our way into the whole armor of God. I'm not dragging my feet, promise. I'm excited about the whole armor of God, but I didn't want to, I was initially going to skip this slavery passage because we dealt with slavery back in the previous chapter, but I didn't want to do that as I got into it. Well, first of all, it's just not my nature. I like to try to tackle stuff head on when we get to it. But also, I think there's some things here that will, um, that will minister to this book overall. Our title tonight is No Partiality, and I take this from a text we'll jump into in a moment. Um, but I had some thoughts today I wanted to share as we get going. Um, the whole purpose of doing this stuff is part of it, part of it, this is not all of it, but part of it is to renew a passion or to ignite a passion for the Bible. Um, I'm a big fan of the Bible, but I'm not a disciple of the Bible, if, I, if, if that makes sense. Um, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I realize that the Jesus I see comes to me from the Bible. But I'm not following Jesus because I read about him in the Bible. I really do believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the hand of men across time, different languages, different cultures, different places. I don't see it as an infallible book in which everything that is in there should be taken literally. But I do see it as stories that lead me to the man, Jesus, who is infallible. The Christ that I meet in there is never changing. He is an infallible Christ. Now, with all of that said, um, I don't think it's a book that demands me to take every story literally. I don't think that it's a book that demands my loyalty. Um, I do think Jesus literally died on a cross. And I'm convinced that he must have risen from the dead because if he hadn't, we wouldn't know who he was. <laughs> we, we, or if at least the people that were there that claimed that they saw him raised from the dead had to be so convinced that this was Jesus, that this was the Jesus in some form that they had followed, that they were willing to lay their lives down for that fact. They were literally willing to go to chopping blocks in prison and be beaten and shipwrecked and all the things that the Bible tells us that happened to them for him, for no other reason than that. I saw him, I encountered him, he is real, and if this is true, then everything changes. And that's what's carried on to us from the biblical text. And I want people to fall in love with that. I, I don't want them to become disciples of the Bible, but I want them to enjoy the Bible. And so I, at risk of sounding a little um, stodgy and religious, I'll say this. I think you should read it every day. I really do. I think you should read something in it every day. You don't have to put a list of I got to do 10 chapters or 20 chapters or read a whole book, but I think you should you give yourself something every day, even if it's a verse or two, even if it's a daily devotion, even if it's dwelling on a psalm, praying one of the psalms, reading a, a story about Jesus, or doing a deep dive into one of the books. Not because you're a better Christian or you're closer to God because of it, but because you, you start to form the image of Christ as you read him in the text. You start to form an image of Christ that's applicable to your day-to-day -day life. And I'm a fan of that. So in that respect, I'm a fan of the Bible. Um, I, I, I like this quote by Tim Keller. Material love dies away as those things get old. Biblical love deepens as it gets old. 
Well, I, I think I like that quote because of the fact that it's said by someone who was in love with the Bible, the late great Timothy Keller, and it was at least in love with the study of the Bible. But he understood that when I fall in love with something in the material realm, whatever it is, a human, a thing, an animal, an idea, a place, they all get old. And as time wears on, they wear down. But my biblical love simply gets deeper the older that it is. The longer that I spend in the text, the deeper the love goes for the God I see in the text. And so I just want to encourage the audience, I want to encourage you to make this a part of your life. And again, I'm not asking, I'm not saying do it lest you be judged or do it or you're not in favor with God, but do it if you want to see the, the ripening of the fruit that's in your life. And I, I realize the early church didn't have copies of the Bible. It's like people getting saved in the book of Acts weren't handed copies of Scripture. Now you guys go home and read Isaiah. They, they didn't. They didn't have it. And they weren't a literate society in the way we are anyway. So I know it's a fairly modern invention even that we have access to this. That doesn't mean that it's not important. If anything, it, it means that maybe this group then would have been jealous of you. It's like, oh, you got all that stuff written down that you could just go read and... Then if they found all the stuff you can cross-reference and commentary, then maybe they'd lose their mind. So um, I just wanted to say that I want to encourage you to dig in. Part of the reason I'm doing that is, is also because I don't particularly think that we have an extremely long segment today, but, you know, um, I, can make a, I can make a mountain out of a molehill when it comes to a few verses. So um, at risk of doing exactly that, let me give you our subtitle in one verse, and this is the last verse we'll cover tonight, and then work our way up to it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, you masters, notice we're not, we're not, in, we're not supposed to be in 9, we're going to end there, but I want you to see this title. You masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. And of course, we're going to work on this as we get into it, but I want you to see the phrase no partiality. Because at the end of this whole segment, we're going to be on slavery, how slaves ought to act in response to their masters, how masters ought to act in response to their slaves. Paul ends on a high note called no partiality. So where Paul, and I'm going to show, I'm going to showcase my frustration tonight a little bit with Paul. And I'm going to try to speak on behalf of what I think is all of us when we read these passages on slavery in the Bible. And what we wish Paul would say and what we're frustrated that he doesn't say. Um, but I want you to, to see this before we get going. He's a man in his time. He's a man writing to his time. He's not a man who thinks of time the way we do. And that's a hard one for us. Okay. First of all, we got clocks everywhere. Clocks on our phones, clocks on our walls, clocks on our wrists. Our whole lives are time bound. How long will this take? What are you doing next week? Um, this project's going to take six months. Those are more modern ideas of thinking of our lives. And so they weren't clock-bound people. That doesn't mean they didn't tell time based on the sun. Like, I know how much time's left before this day is over with. But they didn't think in the terms that we do. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm personally of the persuasion that they didn't think too far into the future like we tend to do. So when we, because I've, I've thought before, what would Paul think if he looked at the church 2,000 years from his time? I don't, I don't, I think they would have blew his mind. The idea of 2,000 years would have been just, I think that's why he landed in Ephesians when he said, he's going to show us the riches of his grace in the ages to come. Because for Paul, that was like, that's ages away. 
It's like, I can't even imagine what that's going to look like. I'm not speaking to that time. And so I don't think he's trying to speak beyond his time. And he's also rarely pushing the boundaries of his time. However, at his best, <laughs> he comes really close. And, and when he does, I don't think he's trying. I don't think he's pushing against social norms. I think he's just singing the song of the New Testament in the best possible way. So when he ends with no partiality, maybe it's the closest he can get to, hey, at the end of the day, masters, you're no better than your slaves. Slaves are no better than each other. Slaves are no better than their masters. The only way I know to say that is God's not partial to the master over the slave. And that's about as close as he gets to, hey, we're all equal. But there are times he does it better, like here in Galatians 3.28. This is the apex. This is what I call Paul singing the music of the new covenant. I've shared this with you before. I don't want to stay on this long, but I, I like to circle back to this from time to time. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This is Paul at his best. This is Paul saying that if we nailed this thing just right, we'd stop making the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. We'd stop making this gender hierarchy between male and female. We'd stop with this societal business of masters and slaves. In Christ, there is the possibility that all of those things are broken down. So Paul at his best does not envision a world in which men lord over women or masters own slaves or Jews and Gentiles are at odds. In in it, at his best, he sees a world in which in Christ, those distinctions don't matter. That, that it doesn't have to be a male, doesn't have to be a master. It wouldn't be the Jews or the chosen people of God. It wouldn't be those Greek strangers on the outside. What frustrates me is that Paul doesn't live here. <laughs> like I want Paul to live in Galatians 3.20. I want it to, I want it to just, just every time he opens his mouth, it to flow out. It doesn't. Paul's human. And he, has, he, he never sings it this clearly again. This is, the, this is pitch perfect. This is New Covenant pitch perfect. And I don't mean he goes flat or sharp all the time, but he sure does miss this a lot. And I'm not, I'm not his judge, I'm no, and I'm not as smart as he is, and I'm no expert on where he came from, but I wish I had this Paul in Ephesians 6. I come close, and I, I, I don't know for sure which one of these comes first? Um, Galatians probably does, to be honest, but I'll leave that for someone else. Let's talk slavery for a moment. Slavery and indentured servitude have been around for all of man's recorded history. We can find it in almost every society, all the way back as long as we can go back. Even Israel participated in the practice of slavery. However, Israel, according to strict Torah code, limited to foreigners. If you want some really in-depth reading on slavery in the biblical sense, mid-20s of Leviticus, kind of live in 23, 24, 25 for a little while. Um, get ready for some interesting stuff, but I, and I encourage you to dig in. They did not permit Israelites to enslave their own people. So Israelites could not enslave other Israelites, even indentured slavery in, as regards to debt. So they were not allowed to hold them as property, a word that seems is tough to even say, but that's exactly what slavery is. It's one person owning another person as property. They were not allowed to do that among their own people. This creates an us versus them approach, even way back in Leviticus. And that us versus them approach is a highlight of later forms of slavery. 
because as you move into the Roman era, slavery becomes a way to pay off your debt. So you could indenture yourself to, to someone because you owe more money than you can ever hope to pay back. So you sort of become their property. Uh, Roman slavery could also be captured. You could be captured in war, much like Hebrew slavery, the Old Testament. Uh, Roman slavery could also be a form, in some ways, a form of adoption. Um, slavery could often lead to adoption, so you might adopt your slave, make them part of your family. As slavery becomes, as we move through history, history becomes the, the future. Um, we, we see slavery become strictly pro property, strictly a master lording it over a slave. It doesn't have anything to do with paying off a debt. Doesn't even have anything to do with being conquered in battle. It has to do with being bought and sold like property. Um, and that enters into the dark pathos of American slavery and the Western Hemisphere slave trade, which was not limited to simply the United States. But largely in the Western Hemisphere, starts to just own people. Um, now, we don't, you don't even really need a, you don't even need a polemic against slavery to realize Nobody wants to see anyone own someone else. So it's a waste of time to go into why it's wrong. What is worth talking about, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that the church took years to get there. Like the church took a long time to land on, hey, it's probably not a really good idea to own people. And one of the reasons why it took them a long time to land on that was because the Torah has slavery for them, not for us. We don't own each other. We can own them. All we got to do is identify who them is. Torah had that. And the New Testament has slavery. And here's Paul in Ephesians 6, not landing exactly where we hope he'll land. And if we can sort of speak from silence, and that is assume that since Paul didn't come out against it as an institution, then maybe it's okay as an institution. We slow dragged our feet for centuries on this continent getting rid of something that was egregious and evil. Like, like you get to the other side of you, how could you ever have thought that was anything but egregious and evil? And yet we had just enough from silence in scripture to say, okay, whether this is part of the practice or not, um, hard to say, but the Bible isn't, and we love to say stuff like this, the Bible wasn't entirely clear on whether or not we should do that. Or the Bible clearly says whether or not we should do that. And then we ended up, you know, thank God, I don't think there's a, a lobby for a return to this form of biblical literalism. Um, that sets us up to read the whole text. So let's try that from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, and then we're going to work through this a little bit. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Bond servants, just a good fancy name for slaves. Um, but it's really, a, it's not the same word necessarily because a lot of bond servants literally put themselves into servitude because they had to for various financial reasons. Uh, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear, with trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. I'm not going to work this too hard yet because we're going to come back and hit some highlights. Don't do it with eye service as men pleasers, but do it as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service, do it as to the Lord and not to men. Notice how Paul keeps, he's trying to pull the slave upward. Say, don't think of yourself as simply underneath someone else's control. Look past them. So he's trying to elevate the eye of the slave, past the master to Christ. 
so, so that think about serving them as if serving Christ. Elevate from the heart your service and your goodwill as a way of coping with what is a terrible situation. And so Paul's trying to lift the head, in a way, of the slave. Knowing that whatever, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he receives the same from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. And you masters, and notice masters only get one verse. Interesting. Most of it's to the slaves. You masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. So let's look at what Paul's actually doing here. Paul encourages the slave to first imagine themselves as slaves of Christ. So you know what you are economically. You're in servitude. But don't think about yourself as in servitude to your master. Think of yourself first and foremost as in servitude to Christ. This seems to be an attempt to help the slave reframe their lives as loyal, first loyal to Christ, and Christ is God. Um, Why a reframing of your life? Well, because if you're a slave, you need your life reframed, especially if who's talking to you is not on a mission to release you from your servitude. So how are we going to help you cope in the middle of your problem? If I got to try to pull a positive out of the way Paul approaches that, this, I would say this. If you're in a situation that is unfavorable, maybe you're in a job, and this is a terrible illustration because slavery was more than a job, okay? It was a lifestyle. But let's use it what we have. You're in a situation that's less than ideal. You're in a place you can't stand or that you hate. You have to go to this job, you have to do this thing, and there's nothing about it you, you like. We may not be happy with how Paul handles the slavery issue, but we can at least find some positives in how we could handle our own day-to-day lives in situations we're not crazy about. Is that we could look at what we're doing as having a higher meaning than a paycheck, or having a higher meaning than, than just filling our day for eight or 10 hours but that maybe it was as if we were doing it unto the Lord, working this job for him, as if the father himself had put me in this place. And you go, well, that's hard to do when when you're doing something menial that doesn't really make any difference for the kingdom. True, but if we don't learn to do that, we can so easily become disillusioned with, even with true labor that gives meaning if we'll embrace the meaning. And I'm of the persuasion that if all you have in meaning is a paycheck, that's better than nothing. But it's really pitiful long term because if it's merely about getting paid, we've all had jobs where we went to just to get paid. And they're really hard to keep going to. Like you hate every second of being there. You dread it when you're not there. You dread it when you're there. It makes life feel you're disillusioned. That is in no way to compare us to slavery, but it's to take Paul's example to say that if you're in a situation that is less than palatable, what could you do to lift your head as if doing this job is for more than your boss or for more than making money, but if it were for something else, as if it were first loyal to Christ. What I also notice is that Paul has no prophetic imagination in this that slavery will cease to exist. He doesn't foresee a time. He doesn't say... You know, for now, this is just the way that it is. I even wish he would say, someday in the new heavens and the new earth. 
We won't have to deal with this. He doesn't. That's not the way Paul talks. It's interesting. Paul doesn't talk in kingdom terms a lot. Jesus speaks in kingdom terms. Paul speaks in grace terms, sometimes covenantal terms. Um, that's not, they're not opposing each other. They're, they're, and sometimes they're saying the same thing with different language. But Paul doesn't speak in that prophetic imagination of someday the world will be better because of this. That's more John than it is Paul. And it's far more Jesus than it is Paul. Um, and I got my theories on that and they don't matter. But I want to see it out of him. We don't here. We, there, there's no prophetic imagination that slavery won't exist someday. Again, I say what I said a moment ago. I'm not sure how far out in the future Paul thought. Um, and I, I'm going to say something that, that's probably unfair because we don't get to sit and interview the early apostles, but I'm going to say it anyway because this is my own opinion. And I'm going to say that up front. This is not thus saith the Lord. This is my own opinion. In my own opinion, I really believe that the first generation Christians, those who witnessed the resurrection including Paul, apostle born out of due time. I truly believe that they didn't think of the world past the end of their age. Like they knew that they were in the end of the age. Jesus told them they were. They wrote like they were in the end of the age. They didn't think, it wasn't in their Jewish mind to think into the world. So they weren't thinking the world was going to stop spinning but they knew that their, the world as they knew it was coming, was coming down. They were so into that that Paul spends big chunks of 1 Corinthians like telling people don't get married, the end of the world, we upon whom the end of the age has come, don't bother, you don't have time to raise kids anyway. I mean, they're, they're really like, look, I don't know what's about to happen, but it's going to be huge and you don't have time for this junk. And that, that permeates the writing of the early church. And so I don't think they thought in terms of a hundred years from now. Again, they didn't think in calendar terms like we do either. And I certainly don't think they thought a couple of millennium. What did that even mean? How could we, we, we can't even imagine, much less the people on the other side of the world speaking a language we've never thought of. And so Paul doesn't have this prophetic vision of a day when it won't exist. So he's really functioning inside of his time. I also personally believe that that's some of Paul's um, women in pastoral leadership demands as well. Because Paul's living in a culture in which there is no room in upward mobility for women. And so Paul doesn't fight against his culture. But in Galatians 3.28, he sings the best music he has. Male, female, Jew, Gentile. See what I'm saying? That there's moments where you go, come on, Paul. Live up to your best self. Go back to that Galatians 3.28 version of you and live right there for a little while. And I know I sound like I'm picking on him. I actually like this. This always kind of inspires me when I start to think of Paul in these terms because I think I can, it kind of helps me deal with my inconsistencies, of which I have a lot. Like I think this, but I also think this. And I don't like this about me. And I, and, and I like this about me. And I think I'm more this. But if I'm really honest, I'm way more this. You know? And... I don't like it, and, but when I see it in Paul, I go, oh, okay, you know, not so bad. And I don't see it in Jesus, and <laughs> so I aspire in Jesus to go, that's what I want to be, is Christ, not Paul. Paul's got some good stuff, but Paul's got some other stuff that's like this Paul, and, you know, I could do without that. Um, so, 
Don't see the New Testament as the end all, the last word on human liberty. Because if you see the New Testament as the last word on human liberty, you're going to make an argument that slavery could be okay. Or you're going to make an argument that women don't have any place in leadership. And, the, and, and a handful of others that you're going to go, eh, I don't know. I don't know about whether or not we're allowed to do that because the New Testament says this or the New Testament doesn't say this. Again, I'm not a disciple of the Bible. I'm a disciple of Christ. So filter this through what you see in Jesus. So the question of whether Jesus would enslave his neighbor <laughs> seems like an easy answer. I mean, the question of how Jesus treated women in positions of revelation or authority seems like an easy answer. And is a far better place to land your foot when you're trying to find firm footing for what you believe than to just land on some, a verse here or there. Um, so let's look at how do you lift the slave's head. Paul has Torah. That's what he builds off of. That it, he has a revelation of Christ. He marries that with Torah. And he realizing that, that trying to take the revelation of Christ and marry it to Torah doesn't always work. And so there's some frustrating moments in Paul's writings where he, he just kind of gives up and goes, well, that's just the ministry of death and it's just going to condemn you. And you got other moments where he, you know, he's a little less strict on that. But here's maybe why he, he could justify saying to slaves to obey their masters as if they were obeying the Lord. Here's how, the, here's how Israel saw herself in the eyes of God. Leviticus 25, 55. This is a chapter on slavery. This is the last verse of that chapter. The children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Okay, get rid of the churchy language and say this the way this chapter speaks because this is a chapter about slaves. You can go back and read it. I read it again this morning. Just make sure. The whole chapter. It's a slave chapter. So give her that servant talk. Let's reread it. The children of Israel are slaves to me. They're my slaves who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So that's how Israel saw herself under God. We had been slaves to Egypt and sin. We are now slaves under God. Paul writes that way. He says, Paul, a servant or a slave of God addresses you. He opens many of his letters with the phrase, I'm a slave. He doesn't mean I'm a slave to Rome. He means I'm a slave to God in the way that Israel saw herself as a slave to God. I see myself as a slave to Christ and a slave to the call. So let's go back to that Ephesians 6. Look at these three verses. I'm going to take, I'm going to pull something from these as we work through. Not So servants do this, but don't do it with eye service as men pleasers. But as bondservants of Christ, do the will of God from the heart. With goodwill, do service as to the Lord. Don't do it as if to men. And know that whatever good anyone does, you're going to receive the same from the Lord, whether you're a slave or free. Let's break these down. Let's just do these in threes. Okay, so let's start with the first one. Do the will of God from the heart. Okay, um, we're, going to, we're going to talk the will of God. We're going to talk doing service. And we're going to talk receiving from the Lord. Doing the will of God from the heart. I use as a cue for this the phrase prayer as formation. Let me work my way into that for a second. Doing the will of God from the heart is Paul's way of saying, not doing because it's the right thing to do, 
but getting to the place where you do because it's the natural response of who you are. Um, I've been reading Alan Frieder's Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And one of the things that really strikes me is that as late as the third century, big bulks of the early church did not receive new converts based upon a confession of faith. They received new converts after watching them live and teaching them for weeks or months or years. So you couldn't just come in and go, I want to accept Jesus. They wanted to watch you live because their idea was you did not have an ear to hear if you didn't have a life that was in service to God. Now, these are the kind of things that eventually morphed into some pretty heavy legalism in the early church. But my point in sharing that with you is that they felt as if it was too cheap to just bring in new converts by saying a sinner's prayer and dunking people in water. But for them, Christianity was a lifestyle. It was a way of governing yourself in the world. And they weren't even willing to share the tenets of their faith with someone who wasn't showing themselves willing to change their life. Now that smacks a little bit of taking a bath before you take a shower, but that was their idea of, we're not, we're not going to risk you making Christ look bad by us just letting you say a prayer, dunking you in the baptistry and you going back out and living your life. If you're not willing to live this out, we don't want to be a part of it. Now, I thank God that we don't treat righteousness quite like that, but I do think they were onto something in the respect of the change being something you were actively living out of, living towards. And Paul writes something similar here when he tells them to do the will of God from the heart. So you can go out here and try to do the right thing, or you can do from the heart. Okay, how do you get from trying to do the right thing to living it out of your heart? That's prayer. That's spiritual formation. And that's the reason we ought to be a praying people. It's not because if we pray, we get God's attention, but if we pray, we get our attention. <laughs> it's not if I pray, I can get God to move. It's if I pray, I'll move. I will shift. I will change the way I think. I might, by changing the way I think, even actually see a change from the inside out. And so this idea of living it out from the heart is not just, I'm going to think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it. Maybe someday it'll come out of my heart. It's actually the total opposite. It's not just what I think, and I'm going to go work really hard to try to live this way. It's being formed so that the life I live for Christ actually comes out of my heart. That can be our prayer. Lord, this is what I want to see in my life, but I want it to come from a transformed heart. I don't just want it to come from a transformed head where I'm out here just trying to do the right thing. I actually want to do this because it's who I am, not because it's what I wish I was. How can I get there, Father? And if that's not part of our prayer, I don't know if we're taking serious heart transformation. It's to say, it's not enough to just go, ah, forget it. You know, it didn't come out of me, it didn't come out of me. Oh, big deal, who cares? I think it's just a, 
I think it's such a, 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 a low way of viewing the transformative power of the Holy Spirit as going, I forget it, who cares, whether it, I, whether it comes out of my heart or not. Why are we even praying? <laughs> like, what's the point of talking to God if not me be transformed? It's not so God can be transformed. Like God's in heaven and he's got his hands over his ears and he's just waiting to see if you pray really loud. And then if you do, he goes, oh, I'm starting. Yeah, yeah, I'm starting to listen. No, it's the father's heart is exactly for us. But my prayer starts to transform me. The second one, Paul says, is do good or goodwill doing service. I put the phrase service is not an option. I run into more people than you would imagine in, this, in grace circles who are so frustrated with any talk of goodwill or service or doing or ought or works like you're up there just cussing them out if you say works comes out of your grace because for some reason that smacks of legalism to a lot of people in grace circles. And, it's, and I get it. Terms matter. Words matter. They do because people have PTSD about words. Like they heard words used badly and in legalistic framings and they can't take that word anymore. And works was one of them. You know, like you, you guys need good works and then attached to that was if you want God to bless you and attached to that if you want to stay saved. And so when they hear good works, they think the stick's coming. And who, who could blame them? It's Pavlovian. You know, they hear the bell and they start to salivate. They hear works and they think, "Uh oh, here comes the smack. I'm going to die and go to hell. And so I realize that. And so words do matter. So I'm not just throwing them out there like big word grenades trying to blow people up. But I am trying to restore a sense of our service for Christ is not optional. Like it's not optional that you love your neighbor. It's not like he goes... Um, you've said the sinner's prayer, welcome into the family of God. If you don't love your neighbor, it's just because I haven't transformed you yet. Someday I'll transform you into loving your neighbor and you'll love them. No, you're supposed to go love them. And so if I want to love them out of my heart, that's part of my process of spiritual formation. But the service is part of what I do. It's not an option. Finally, receive the same from the Lord. Listen, slaves had no hope for a reward. They, could, they didn't have anything to expect. So Paul elevates them to stop thinking they're going to get something from their masters and start hoping to receive something from, from God, something from their father. Don't take this out of context and believe that Paul is teaching some sort of do good and God will give you favor. Because Paul's talking to a group of slaves who have no hope. They can do a good job and they don't get anything better than if they do a bad job. And so Paul goes, okay. It's not going to be enough for me to say to you, work really hard. Maybe your masters will be good to you because you know better. Because some of you serve some bad masters. You could do good all day long. They're not going to bless you. So do it as if by the doing, the blessing comes to you from the Lord and believe that it does. Now, if you want to call Paul a legalist for saying that, good luck. What would you say to a slave? <laughs> I mean, really, let's just get practical. What would you say to somebody? Do so you want to call Paul a legalist for telling them to expect a reward from the Lord? I don't, I don't call that a legalist. I say that's someone who's given someone a reason to hope. And that's exactly what Paul's doing in the middle of that argument, which leads to his final verse of this segment. You masters do the same things to them. This is his only master's verse. This is the only time he, he speaks to sort of the overlord. You do the same thing to them. Stop threatening them, knowing that you have a master who lives in heaven and that there's no partiality with your master that lives in heaven. And I'll 
close that thought by saying this. Again, we want Paul to say, masters, free your slaves. When I read this, this is what I, would. This is what I hope the verse will say. Is that Paul has changed his mind. He goes, you know what? Free your slaves. Instead, he appeals to the masters as if they are slaves of Christ. This is a shocking turn where even the masters become the slaves. So the best thing Paul can do here is, uh, you know, I don't, he doesn't have the prophetic imagination to say it's not, there's not going to be slavery. But instead, he goes, masters, quit acting like you're better than them. There's no partiality with God. You serve God as well. Realize that you are as much a slave to Christ as they are a slave to you. Notice this comes on the backside of husbands treating their wives the way Christ treats his church. He's trying to do the same thing with masters. So you go, if you're a slave of Christ, how does Christ treat his slaves? Slaves. But what if you were to treat the people under you in exactly the same way? Late in life, we finally get a Paul who may be getting close to where we wish he would go. So to see that Paul, we're throwing a bonus tonight. Um, the bonus is we're going to cover an entire other book of the Bible this evening. That's free to your studies in Ephesians. So for those of you who are watching studies in Ephesians number 28, you also get studies in Philemon tonight. <laughs> the entire letter of Philemon, all 25 verses of it. I promise we will not break it down to the level we have broke down Ephesians. All right, but I want you to watch this letter and just listen carefully. I'll give you the pertinent details as we go. Listen to Paul late in life. He's in prison. He's not far from death. Dealing with the, a slave who has come to a meeting or has met him in prison. Paul's led that slave named Onesimus to Christ. And now Paul writes a letter to Onesimus' master on what should be done with Onesimus now that he's coming home. Paul, a prisoner or a slave of Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. To the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. This is a house church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. I hear of your love and your faith, which you have towards the Lord Jesus, toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. A lot of good theology, particularly in that sixth verse. As you acknowledge all the good things that are in you, may your faith become effective. This is an awesome introduction. This is how you reprimand someone you love, by the way, is you open with that kind of a greeting. It's not a slap. It's all compliment. It's all uplifting. It's all upbuilding. And it's not just like boilerplate language. He speaks to Philemon from the heart, something that really matters to him. Verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, therefore, in light of all of this good stuff about you, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. I could just tell you what to do. I could command you. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to appeal to you. Okay, this is as close as we get to a Paul giving us something, I won't say anti-slavery, but at least a new way to think about this. Being such a one as Paul the aged, I'm also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I begotten while in my chains. I led him to Christ while I'm in prison. What that phrase means. He's not his actual blood son. Who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. 12. I'm sending him back. What a phrase. He's a slave. He ran away. He's accepted Christ, but I'm sending him home. So you therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wished 
to keep him with me, but that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I don't want to do anything that your good deed might not be by compulsion, but voluntary. I'm not going to make him stay and tell you he's staying. If you want him to stay, then I want you to want him to stay. I'm not going to boss you around. I'm not going to tell you what to do with what you believe is yours. Maybe he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. 17. If you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you or he owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even more your own self besides. Nice. <laughs> nice little sly. Not going to bring up what you owe. We'll leave that alone. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord having confidence in your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Man, Paul knows how to lay it on. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me because I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Keep praying for me. Get a room ready. I'm coming out of here and I'm coming to visit you. And then I was going to leave these out, but I thought, no, if we leave them out, then you didn't get to study the whole book of Philemon. That's not fair. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you. As does Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What a letter. What a letter. And at the core, it's, hey, I'm going to send this guy back to you. Think about how you treat him. I'm not telling you what to do with him. I'm asking you to consider him as if I was walking through the door. And if he's wronged you that bad, then you charge me and I'll pay it back. And we, I don't know what Philemon does with this, but I got to think. This is an intimate letter. I don't know if Paul thought this would be read in 2023 on the other side of the world. But this is a living, breathing example, as close as I think we get to Paul living up to Galatians 3.28. Where he doesn't give you what you want in Ephesians 6, he just might pull it off in Philemon. And maybe if in our American history we had spent more time reading the Paul of Philemon than the Paul of Ephesians 6, we might have landed on a better spot sooner than we did. I don't know. No partiality. At the end, I think Paul actually believes that. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Thank you for this word tonight. Thank you for the shining spotlight we've seen on the lovely Jesus. Where, where we have muddied the waters with our opinions and our thoughts and I've given some tonight and I pray that father those things will pass what will survive is those areas where we shine the light on Jesus and made him look good which we know that father only in Christ are we going to find the answers to these questions to these things that we've dug into tonight we have a storied past as your people for how we've treated our neighbor and how we've treated even how we've treated our own father may we continue to grow as we have continuous ongoing revelations of jesus growing into the fullness of the stature of the body of christ and we thank you that it begins in us in jesus name amen